Hello, everyone. This is the Black and White Church Podcast. It is just me here today um, for this first part. My name is Colton, for those of you who don't know. Um, Ryan is not with us today for this first part just because um, today is a heavy episode. Um, yeah, I, I, I just finished recording it so we could know where to tell you to skip ahead if you don't want to listen to it. Um, so the reality is we're going to get, I personally am going to get into the stories uh, of some racialized terror in America in the form of lynching. Um, it's dark. It, it's at times gruesome. It's at times uh, just pure evil. And so I would just say if you are a, a black person listening to this or if you are a person of color, um, it, it might just be best to, to skip ahead to minute 45. Um, me and Ryan will reflect on the cross and lynching tree, James Cone book. It won't be graphic. Uh, we'll be more talking about the black Christian experience in America um, in our history and how that parallels the, the the kind of story of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, so that'll be a fun reflective. It'll be a good reflective. Um but that's going to happen at minute 45. Ryan's not joining us for the first part because he doesn't want to sit through this. Um, he thinks it's important that uh, his white brothers and sisters hear these stories and hear um, what happened in our history. He already knows it. He's he's lived it. He's had it passed down to him from family members. Um, he carries it in his bones. Um, and so, again, if you are a, a black person, if you are... Um, someone who uh, identifies as someone of color, um, feel free again to uh, just skip to, to minute 45. Um, we'll, we'll have an interlude there. You'll hear the music. After the music is when things will be normal so you don't get caught off guard, but it'll be around minute 45. And yeah, for those of you who are white and maybe don't want to listen to it and maybe want to skip ahead too, uh, I would just strongly recommend that maybe you sit in this. You can you can take it in doses. You can take it every 10 minutes and then take a break. Um, some things are heavy. I give you pauses at times in it to take a break. Um, but we need to hear these stories. We need to hear um, what faced our nation. We need to hear the evil that was committed by our nation. We need to hear the stories of people who have come before us that were white and black and the white terror that was brought across on black bodies um, in our nation's history. Because if, if we don't learn from this, if we don't, pick up uh, the truth of what happened, if we don't study what actually happened in history, most of our history has been whitewashed. Um, if we don't actually learn the true history, we will not know how to empathize. We will not understand the terror. Uh, we will not understand the fear. We will not understand the pain. We will not understand the suffering, the trauma. Um, and so again, we need to hear these stories. Uh, black people often are, are raised with these stories, are raised with the fear, are raised with this because a nation has oppressed them whether governmentally or uh, individually, personally, community-wise. Um, and so again, this is a it's a hard episode. It's a tough episode. It's one that uh, took me a while to get through, honestly, uh, to be honest. There's, there's pauses where I, I took a little break myself. Um, but again, we're not here to uh, dramatize. This isn't gore porn. This isn't uh, something we're, we're trying to revel in. Um, we don't want to find uh, some type of weird fascination with black torture and, and terror, but we do need to hear the history if you haven't. You might have heard some of it. You need to hear all of it, um, and I'm only giving us a glimpse of it. So again, take a deep breath. I will put on an interlude here in a second, and I will then continue on the other side of it. Um, but again, I ask if you are white, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, sit in this, sit in the tension, sit in the pain, sit with Jesus, um, and make it through. Make it through this episode. Make it through the tough stories. Um, and yeah, I'll catch you on the other side um, with Ryan, and we will discuss uh, The Cross and Lynching Tree by James Cone. Catch y'all later. 
So a lot of this is going to come from the Equal Justice Initiative's groundbreaking reporting on this. They're one of the few people that have really tracked lynching in America, generally speaking. Um, and I'll link the longer report below in the show notes if any of you want to read some more uh, about this history um, and about what happened, really, in America. <clears throat> so before we get into the history of lynchings, I think we need to talk a little bit about the history before lynching. Um, so obviously, uh, slavery in America, that happened. Um, I know some <laughs> might try to demean it or might try to deny it, um, but that happened. Um, and so after the Civil War, uh, obviously things changed. There was this next period often referred to as Reconstruction. Um, and in this period, there's some sharecropping, which we'll talk um, a little bit more about later. Um, but basically, Congress established this Freedman's uh, Bureau in March 1865 with a mandate to provide formerly enslaved people with basic necessities and to oversee their condition and treatment in the former Confederate states. Um, so basically, they were trying to set up a bureau to help <clears throat> uh, recently freed slaves basically establish their citizenship, establish um, a way of living. Um, but the problem was is they actually failed to really give a budget for this bureau, instead leaving it to kind of be staffed and funded by President Andrew Johnson's War Department. So what happened then is North soldiers were then sent into southern cities to help enforce this newfound citizenship of black people. Um, and this actually, for the most part, helped um, at first. But President Johnson, uh, a unionist, former slaveholder from Tennessee, served as vice president during the Civil War and assumed the presidency after Lincoln's assassination in April 1865. And though he initially promised to, to punish these southern uh, quote-unquote traitors is what he called them, um, Johnson also issued 7,000 pardons to secessionists um, in 1866. So even though the plan was to hold people accountable, the plan was to enforce a new way of living, um, really what happened was pardons. Um, they also rescinded orders granting black farmers tracts of land that was confiscated from Confederates. Um, and so basically this greatly impacted uh, former slaved enslaved people's ability to build their own farms because whites routinely refused to provide them credit. So this basically forced uh, black people to rely on the government's assistance um, and basically couldn't purchase land without government assistance. So you can see the parallel in some ways um, to the modern um, welfare system in some ways, and you can see some other issues, and you can see how this will um, kind of set up an interesting dynamic right now between um, southern current plantation owners who have recently lost uh, free slave labor and these newly found uh, freed slaves who can't buy land um, because they are being denied loans or denied grants to buy them. So um, Johnson, you know, instead of facilitating black land ownership, um, he advocated a new practice that soon replaced slavery as a primary source of southern agricultural labor, i.e. sharecropping. So I told you we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Um, we don't have time to get into this uh, in, in real full depth, but basically what happened is that under this system, um, black laborers worked white-owned land in exchange for a share of the crop at harvest, minus costs for food and lodging, um, often in the same slave quarters they had previously inhabited. So they're doing the same work, but they're just getting compensated for it um, is basically what this was. And it was called sharecropping because you're sharing the crop, even though it was still primarily owned um, by white plantation owners. At the same time, there's also this thing called convict leasing, um, which is basically it was the practice of selling uh, convicts, like convicts who were in prisons and selling their labor um, to private interests. Um, so you would, you would sell basically convicts who were in prison for a plethora of offenses or even non-offenses, and they would then go work the fields or do other things that would help make up for the economic loss of slavery. And with this, you can imagine once that started, 
then there was a whole slew of new legislature and laws. Um, basically, there was these things called the Black Codes, which created new criminal offenses such as vagrancy and loitering, um, which is basically you could just arrest a black person for just standing around um, and just being there. Um, and so this led to mass arrests and mass incarceration um, and basically led most of these convicts, quote unquote, back to the plantations. So you can imagine um, that got pretty nasty, especially now that they are not, quote unquote, property of plantations. They treated convicts much worse. Um, there was probably even harsher treatments um, of these people because you didn't have to worry about them living because you could just get new convicts. Um, so this created a really, really terrible dynamic. But there was still some hope, obviously, in some ways that maybe things would get back to normal. And so two kind of terrifying incidents um, occurred in 1866 that kind of foretold um, what life was going to be like coming up here in the future. And so on May 1st, 1866, in Memphis, Tennessee, white police officers began firing into a crowd of African-American men, women, and children that had gathered on South Street. And afterward, white mobs rampaged through black neighborhoods with the intent to kill every Negro and drive the last one from the city. Um, direct quote from the people there. And over these three days of violence, 46 African-Americans were killed. Two whites were killed by friendly fire. 91 houses, four churches, and 12 schools were burned to the ground. At least five women were raped, and many black people fled the city permanently. So that was the first incident. The second incident was less than three months later in New Orleans. A group of African-Americans, many of whom had been free before the Civil War, attempted to convene a state constitutional convention to extend voting rights to black men and repeal racially discriminatory laws known as the Black Code. So basically they're trying to repeal those things I told you about, these laws that are basically leading to convict leasing and leading to more people in the prison. So they're just meeting, as normal Americans do. Um, and so when they convened, a white mob began uh, kind of – clashing with them on the streets and then began firing on them indiscriminately killing um, convention supporters um, and unaffiliated black bystanders who weren't even part of the convention um, and rather than maintaining order the police showed up and they attacked black residents with guns axes and clubs arresting many and killing several um, and by the time federal troops arrived because um, that was kind of the thing the federal troops would come in to try to break up some of these racial terror incidents um, by the time they came in as many as 48 black people were dead and 200 had been wounded so again, this is in 1866. These are kind of foreshadowing what's to come, um, this kind of new era of racial terror. And so again, in Reconstruction, black voters gained a lot of power um, with their newfound citizenship. They could uh, win elections now. Black voter turnout neared 90% in many jurisdictions. Um, and they started to elect both white and black leaders to represent them. And more than 600 African-Americans, most of them formerly enslaved, were elected as state le legislators during this period. So you can imagine um, in some of these places, a lot of people didn't like that because um, all of a sudden there's this huge voting population that is now dominating who gets elected, um, what policies are put forth. And so basically uh, a lot of Republicans took control of the government with the support of black votes because um, the Republican Party was kind of the the party of uh, black advancement at the time, uh, quote unquote. And so this is kind of how it went. Um, but obviously you can imagine um, that, that white Democrats and other white people were angered by this. Um, and so in 1868, um, white Democrats were angered by a growing black support for white Republican candidates in St. Laundry Parish, uh, Louisiana. And so they terrorized the black community in two weeks of attacks that left more than 100 black people dead. Um, again, this is just a precursor of the terror to come. Um, these are still like sporadic incidents. There's not much that happened 
Um, this is kind of like there's this it's like this in between time between the end of slavery in reconstruction and before racial terror really started picking up. So things were kind of looking good in some ways other than a few incidents. Um, but the problem was is that uh, there, there was something that happened. Uh, Republicans started taking some of the black vote for granted um, and started focusing on garnering more of the white moderate vote. And this presidential election of 1876 kind of changed everything. Um, so it was, a, it was a deadlock tie between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel J. Tilden. And so basically, um, Congress and the Supreme Court brokered a compromise under which the Republican candidate, Rutherford, um, Rutherford Hayes, would become president if he promised to end Reconstruction and remove federal troops from southern cities. So within two months of taking offense, President Hayes took action to end the federal troops' role in southern politics. So the federal troops in the South after Reconstruction, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, were kind of there keeping the peace. Um, it was a show of force to stop uh, acts of terror and to stop local governments from discriminating uh, more harshly against black people. But that changed, obviously, when there was a chance here to regain power of the presidency in this tie. Um, and they kind of made that compromise. The Democrats said, hey, we'll let you get the presidency as long as you remove these troops so we can start doing what we want to do. And so with that, that is how we really enter um, kind of this reign of terror that starts um, from that point forward. So that's 1876. And so let's talk about lynchings. Um, so there were often many reasons for lynchings. One, uh, lynchings often resulted from a widely distorted fear of interracial sex. Um, so you'll see that a lot coming up. Sometimes lynchings were in response to casual social transgressions. Sometimes lynchings were based on allegations of serious violent crimes like murder. Other times lynchings were basically just public spectacles um, where it just one happened and then they just started going on a rampage and lynching others for, for no reason. Um, other times in similar ways, lynchings basically escalated into large scale violence targeting the whole African-American community. And finally, lynchings of sharecroppers, ministers, and community leaders who resisted mistreatment. Um, and these were most common between 1950 and 1940, or 1915 <laughs> and 1940, sorry. Um, so many victims of terror lynchings uh, were often murdered without being accused of any crime. They were killed for often minor social transgressions or for demanding basic ba like civil rights and fair treatment, as you'll hear in the stories below. And so the Equal Justice Initiative, again, something you should look into, an organization I believe in and Ryan believes in as well, um, has documented 4,084 racial terror lynchings in 12 southern states between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the end of 1950. So again, in that 73-year window between 1877 and 1950, they documented 4,084 racial terror lynchings in just 12 southern states. Um, they also got about 300 racial terror lynchings in other states during this time period, but a lot of the data is hard to find. Again, Equal Justice Initiative is one of the first places that have really tried to track down the history and the data behind this. So if you look at those numbers, 4,084 in, an, uh, in a 73-year period, that is 60 lynchings a year. Um, that comes out to about once a week, once a week in these 12 uh, southern states. So um, let's take a deep breath. We're going to go into some of these stories because, again, uh, I think it's important that, that we hear these stories, especially for those of us who don't know the history of lynching, that don't know the history of this country, that don't know um, the racialized trauma that, that black Americans live with today um, from a shared history of this time of terror. Again, until 1950, 
that that was when they were still going up to. And you even have Emmett Till after that and some other cases beyond that. So this is still recent. There are people that are grandparents that are passing down these stories who had a friend or brother or cousin or family member or someone in their town that was a, a victim of racial terror lynching. So again, we need to sit with history. We need to sit with a story because we will repeat it. We will denounce it. We will deny it. We will dismiss it. When we see common instances, because we say, no, that was so far ago. That didn't actually happen. That wasn't as widespread. We need to hear the actual data, the actual history, so that we can more accurately understand now, empathize now, and not dismiss, deny, or discourage people seeking justice for things that happen similarly or in related manners. So uh, let's jump on in. Um, We'll start in 1889. Uh, we're going to be jumping around historically. Um, we're going to jump around city to city, state to state, um, and different reasons and different means. Um, but we'll start in 1889 in Aberdeen, Mississippi. Keith Bowen allegedly tried to enter a room where three white women were sitting. And though no further allegation was made against him, Mr. Bowen was lynched by the entire white neighborhood for his offense. William Brooks was lynched in 1894 in Palestine, Arkansas, after he asked his wife, his white employer, for permission to marry the man's daughter. In 1901, Bailey Crutchfield's brother allegedly found a lost wallet containing $120 and kept the money. He was arrested and about to be lynched by a mob in South County, Tennessee, when at the last moment he broke free and escaped. And so obviously the mob was mad about this and thwarted their attempt to kill the suspect. Um, the mob turned its attention to his sister and lynched his sister in her brother's stead, though she was not accused of any involvement in the theft. Generally, a black man was lynched by a white mob in 1904 for merely knocking on the door of a white woman's house in Reevesville, South Carolina. In 1912, Thomas Miles was lynched for allegedly writing letters to a white woman inviting her to have a cold drink with him. White men lynched Jeff Brown in 1916 in Cedar Bluff, Mississippi for accidentally bumping into a white girl as he ran to catch a train. In 1917, Sam Gates was lynched for the offense of annoying white girls in England, Arkansas. And I first came across um, this one in The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, and it's some of you might, might be aware um, of this story. On May, 17, May 17, 1918, Hayes Turner was lynched after being accused of being an accomplice in the murder of a white farmer. Um, two days later, Mary Turner, his wife, so her husband was already lynched, his wife, who was eight months pregnant, was lynched by a white mob from Brooks County, Georgia, at Folsom's Bridge, 16 miles north of Valdosta, for publicly speaking against the lynching of her husband. A white mob bound her feet, hanged her from a tree with her head facing down, um, and threw gasoline on her and burned the clothes off her body. Mrs. Turner was still alive when the mob took a large butcher's knife uh, to her abdomen, and they they cut the... uh, the unborn baby from her body. When the baby fell from Mary Turner, um, a member of the mob crushed the crying baby's head with his foot. Um, the mob then riddled Miss Turner's body with hundreds of bullets, killing her. And so we'll just pause for a second and sit in that. This should shock you. This should terrorize you. This should cause discomfort, cause pain, you should want to, to turn this off um, and stop listening. And, and maybe you can. Maybe take a break. Maybe take a pause. Um, go for a walk. <sighs> but we must keep going. 
because um, this is the history of many of our friends, many of our, our beloved uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is the history of our nation. This is the history of my ancestors, your ancestors. Um, some of our ancestors were a part of these things. Some of our ancestors were bystanders um, for these things. And we need to sit in the sins of our ancestors, the evil of our ancestors. Um, and we need to know the history. We just need to know the history. So let's keep going. In 1918, when Elton Mitchell of Early, Arkansas, refused to work on a white-owned farm without pay, prominent white citizens of the city cut him into pieces with butcher knives and hung his remains from a tree. In 1918, Private Charles Lewis was lynched in Hickman, Kentucky, after he refused to empty his pockets while wearing his army uniform. In 1927, Owen Fleming refused to follow an overseer's command to retrieve mules out of a flooded district in Melwood, Arkansas. The overseer pulled a gun, which Mr. Fleming's wrestled away from him and fired in self-defense. A mob then pursued and quickly caught him. Um, and alerted of Mr. Fleming's offense, a local sheriff told the mob, I'm busy, just go ahead and lynch him. And they did. So think about that. You have a story of a man uh, not wanting to do a job, gets attacked, kills someone in self-defense or shoots at him in self-defense. The mob then pursues them. The sheriff hears about it and says, I'm busy. Just go ahead and lunch him for me. Um, that, that is what's happening. And that was in 1927. 1927. Um, so again, there's multiple layers to this. There's multiple um, jurisdictions involved. In 1930, an African-American man named Lacey Mitchell was lynched in Thomasville for testifying against a white man accused of raping an African-American woman. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, a key witness, was shot in his home by four white men and died. The white defendant was acquitted and released. Richard Wilkerson was lynched in Manchester, Tennessee in 1934 for allegedly slapping a white man who had assaulted a black woman in an African-American dance. In 1934, after being accused of associating with a white woman in Newton, Texas, John Griggs was hanged and shot 17 times and his body was dragged behind a, behind a car through the town for hours. In 1940, Jesse Thornton was lynched in Laverne, uh, Alabama, for referring to a white police officer, police officer by his name without the title of Mr. So with all of these things, um, lynchings often became a spectacle um, for even those not actively participating. Many were carnival-like events with vendors selling food, printers producing postcards featuring photographs of the lynching of the corpse and the victim's body parts collected as souvenirs. So this is like a, a carnival-like spectacle. It's something the whole town comes out to see. It's something that you take photos of and send to uh, members in different cities or states and saying, look where I was at. Or It's like sending a postcard from Rome. Um, that's kind of how the a lot of these events were like, um, with people profiting off them, people taking victims' body parts as literal souvenirs. And again, this is not that long ago. Um, these are literal human beings that are doing these acts of terror and evil and violence in our nation's history within the last 100 years, 150 years. So in 1904, after Luther Holbert allegedly killed a local white landowner, he and a black woman believed to be his wife were captured by a mob and taken to Doddsville, Mississippi, to be lynched before hundreds of white spectators. Both victims were tied to a tree and forced to hold out their hands while members of the mob methodically chopped off their fingers and distributed the fingers as souvenirs. Next, their ears were cut off. Mr. Holbert was then beaten so severely that his skull was fractured. Um, and members of the law... <sighs> members of the mob used a large corkscrew to bore holes into the victim's body and pull out large chunks of flesh, um, which then were thrown into the fire with the victims and burned. 
the white men and women and children present, again, white men, women, and children, women, and children, women, and children were there. Present, they, they were present, they watched the horrific mortars, murders while enjoying the vile, or deviled eggs, lemonade, and whiskey in a picnic-like atmosphere. Another public spectacle lynching took place in 1917 in Memphis, Tennessee, when a mob of 25 men seized Eli um, Persons from a train that was transporting him to a stand trial for rape and murder. The mob had announced the lynching time and location in advance, and thousands of people attended, backing up traffic for miles. Food and gum vendors sold their um, food to the many spectators as Mr. Persons was doused with gasoline and set on fire. A 10-year-old black child was forced to sit next to the fire and watch him die. When members of the crowd complained that Mr. Parsons would die too quickly if burned, the fire was extinguished and attendees fought over Mr. Parsons, Mr. Parsons' clothes and remnants of the robe to keep as mementos. Two men then cut off his ears for souvenirs um, and then his head. Uh, I'm not even going to share that part. You can look it up. Later that year, just a few hours away in Dyersburg, Tennessee, um, Lation Scott was subjected to a brutal and prolonged lynching after being accused of criminal assault. Um, thousands gathered near a vacant lot across the street from a downtown courthouse, and children sat atop their parents' shoulders to get a better view as Mr. Scott's clothes and skin were ripped off with knives. White men, women, and children, again, white men, women, and children, fought over the robes, clothing, and body parts and proudly displayed these souvenirs with no fear of punishment in their homes. In Noonan, Georgia, in 1899, um... Pieces of Sam Hose were sold after he was lynched. That same year, spectators at the lynching of Richard Coleman in Mary Maysville, Kentucky, took flesh, teeth, fingers, toes from his corpse. And so a lot of these spectacle lynchings were preserved in photographs um, that, again, were made into postcards and distributed unashamedly through the mail. So our United States postal system, I don't know if it was specifically them, but just think of the postal system was a part of this, distributing um, memorabilia, memorabilia, souvenirs, postcards, uh, the sheriffs looked the other way or told them to do it for us. Um, women and children came out in a picnic-like atmosphere and, and cheered it on. Um, and the whole time they're forcing other black citizens to watch this, um, and black children as one set of children, white children are watching this with, uh, drinking lemonade and, and having gum and food at this great event for them, quote-unquote, uh, black children are forced to watch uh, a family member, someone who looks like them, um, be brutalized in this way. <sighs> this one is, is a tough one um, for those who are victims of sexual abuse. Um, so you can skip this one. In, in 1920, brothers Irving and Herman Arthur worked on a white-owned farm where they suffered ongoing abuse. And so they decided to leave um, in search of better working, conditions, uh, better working conditions, and the farm owners tried to stop them with gunfire and then alleged that the Arthurs had wounded them. Um, soon after this, they were arrested, and local whites began posting signs throughout the town advertising their impending lynching. And on July 6, 1920, 1920, this is 101 years ago, not that long ago, there are people that are alive um, that were from this time period. On July 6, 1920, a mob of 3,000 people gathered to watch as both men were tied to a flagpole at the fairgrounds and tortured and burned to death. During the lynching, um, the Arthur sisters were jailed um, and under the pretense of protection, uh, but then were beaten and uh, sexually assaulted by more than 20 white men while in custody. 
After the lynchings, the brothers' corpses were chained to a car and driven through the town uh, for hours. A local sheriff involved in the case later declared the brothers had been guilty of no crime, but then also did not accuse anyone else of murdering them or torturing them or sexually assaulting them. <sighs> so lynchings were also heavily motivated by uh, sexuality. So lynchings we have from petty crimes. Sometimes lynchings were public spectacles, but a lot of lynchings were motivated by sexuality. Um, whites often sought, sought retribution for alleged crimes by targeting entire black communities with violent public and sexualized attacks, um, including victims, forcing victims to strip, binding them in compromised positions, whipping their private spaces, um, and there was widespread rape of black women, sometimes in front of their families, and uh, often mutilation. This was uh, what whites were doing often to try to preserve the quote-unquote sexual purity of their race um, by doing this to the black community. So um, this was kind of how white vigilantes um, used terror to kind of revive the privileges of white masculinity over the bodies of their former slaves. It was a way of gaining control. Um, and studies show that nearly 25% of the lynchings of African-Americans in the South are based on charges of sexual assault. So again, this is one of the main reasons for why it happened. Um, and at the same time, in a weird way, um, in a terrifying way, and in a horrific way, uh, lynching provided whites a sense of community um, and enabled white men to affirm and perform their manhood by, quote-unquote, protecting Southern women. Um, they would protect them by undermining African-American sense of community by forcing black men and women children to witness these horrific acts uh, committed against their family, friends, and neighbors. And we're not even including in, in these stories um, the greater race-based riots like the, the Tulsa massacre and the 1919 riots. Um, as historian Leon F. Litwock writes, how many black men, women, and, and children were beaten, flogged, mutilated, and murdered in the first years of emancipation will never be known. We just don't know how many people. We, we have Equal Justice and Issues report. Um, we have um, the stories that I have I've listed out. We have the brutal uh, remembrance of them. We have passed down stories. Um, but again, we have no idea how many people were actually brutalized, murdered, mutilated, killed, assaulted, whatever. Um, just because, as with most things in American history, we have chosen to forget. We have chosen to whitewash. We have chosen to not hold anyone accountable. We have chosen to not make reparations. We have chosen to not uh, seek to rebuild. Um, we have just chosen to turn and, and move forward, quote-unquote, um, while we continue to perpetrate some of these same things in different ways. Um, we turn, continue to trigger. We continue to wound. We continue to bring up and remembrance some of these things. That's enough for some of you listening. Um, there might be some responses uh, to the stories and realities I listed out. There might be, well, it was it was wrong, right? We all agree now that it was wrong. Um, and even then, people, you know, people knew it was wrong, right? Like people, like yeah, this was evil that happened, but evil happens everywhere. It, it, people get, a, you know, convicted of evil, right? Well, um, the, the reality is, very few white people were ever convicted of murder for lynching a black person in America. Um, during this period, the ones I've talked about and all the lynchings committed after 1900s, only 1% resulted in a lyncher being convicted of any criminal offense. 1% of 4,084. And many of those were innocent victims. Many of those were neighborhoods. And many of those uh, were people who had no crimes that they had committed. Um, it's only 1% of people 
Um, so then I can imagine maybe other responses. Okay. But maybe other people were probably against it, you know, like maybe this, some places in the South, maybe some cities, you know, it was public spectacle for them, but maybe other places were horrified. Um, well, so let me, let me share some quotes from news outlets. Um, this is from the Memphis, uh, avalanche appeal, um, news site to editorialize, let the black man keep his hands off white women. And then lynching will soon die out. So, i.e., if, if black men will stop just touching our white women, then lynching will stop. Um, so, justifying it. Women's rights activist Rebecca Felton wrote, If it requires lynching to protect, to protect women's dearest possession from ravening, drunken human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand per week if necessary. And this is often used um, in the media. I mean, we, we see, we've talked about this, the Birth of the Nation film, um, I think in the, the 1910s, 1920s, uh, was used uh, as a way to stoke fears uh, of black men uh, sexually assaulting white women or depicting them in inhumane uh, type realities. And so even our media in our movies, um, Birth of a Nation was one of the highest grossing films uh, ever at the time. And that was used. It was shown in the White House, um, and it was very much providing fuel uh, for the racial terror that happened. And then another question might be, um, well, what, what about other races? Other races were lynched too, right? It was just a wild time. Um, like, it was just the wild, wild west. That, you know, our history is crazy. Everyone was lynched. White people were lynched too. So, statistically speaking, um, the ratio of black lynching victims to white lynching victims was 4 to 1 from 1882 to 1889. Um, so, still way much more black lynching victims than white lynching victims. But that was during Reconstruction. After Reconstruction, it increased to more than 6 to 1 between 1890 and 1900. So, that was just in the 10 years after Reconstruction, it went up to 6 to 1. And then after 1900, it soared to more than 17 to 1. So, yes other people were lynched. It was, it was sometimes a form of, uh, false retribution, false justice. Um, but there was also a racial terror lynching that was way more widespread than just a common everyday, uh, lynching. So, uh, there might be other responses of, well, it was like the, you know, the wild west out there, our criminal justice system wasn't developed enough yet. Uh, just vigilante justice, um, right? Like it, it, now we have good systems in place. That's why it doesn't happen anymore. And so let me tell you some stories about that. In 1906, Edward Johnson, a black man, was convicted of raping a white woman and sentenced to death <clears throat> by an all-white jury in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His attorneys appealed the case and won a rare stay of execution for the United States Supreme Court. In response, a white mob seized Mr. Johnson from the jail, which had been vacated by the sheriff and his staff, dragged him through the streets, hanged him from the second span of Walnut Street Bridge, and shot him a hundred times. The mob left a note pinned on the corpse that read, To Justice Harlan, come get your N-word now. Mr. Johnson used his last words to declare his innocence. Nearly a century later, he was cleared of the rape. So, clearly, uh, the justice system here was going through the process. There was a jury. There was a sentencing. They tried to convict him. They did. Um, there was an appeals thing. They took it to the United States Supreme Court. There's clearly a justice system in place. It wasn't like this underdeveloped wild, wild west that we try to think it was. There was a process. There was a method. It wasn't as good or maybe as updated as we have it now, um, but there was a process. That didn't matter. Uh, this was just where it was going. And then I know some responses will be, Okay, I get all that. Uh, I will admit it was all terrible. It was all crazy. It was all evil. It was the worst thing ever. But it was so long ago, right? Like, it was so long ago. 
and it depends on how you define long ago. Um, but Emmett Till was lynched in 1955. My grandpa was alive. He was uh, 16 at the time, so teenager. He could have been there, one of the spectacle. Um, MC Mac Parker was in 1959. And this is not to mention countless others that we do not know about or aren't officially classified that way. I'm sure there was some in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and even today that we have no idea about. Sure, it is not at the, maybe the wide scale it was, um, but there's a reason for that. And we'll tell you um, now why um, some of these lynchings decreased. And so one of the main reasons um, for lynching decreasing was the in- the increase of the death penalty. So lynching has gone down in uh, popularity and use because the death penalty has gone up. Um, so the decline of lynching in the studied states relied heavily on the increased use of capital punishment imposed by court order following an often accelerated trial. The most famous attempted legal lynching, quote-unquote, is likely is that of the so-called Scottsboro Boys, nine young African-American men charged with raping two white women in 1931. White mobs converged outside the courtroom during the trial to demand that the accused be executed. Represented by incompetent lawyers, the nine were convicted by an all-white, all-male juries within two days, and all but the youngest were sentenced to death. When the NAACP and others launched a national movement to challenge the cursory proceedings, the white people of Scottsboro did not understand the reaction. After all, they did not lynch the accused. They gave them a trial. And so in the same way, we see this even with the uh, Central Park Five, where Donald Trump called for the death penalty for all five of them that were accused of, of raping and brutalizing a white woman. It turned out to not be true. Um, but we still see that we use now the justice system and the death penalty to replace uh, some of our lynching thirst um, that an America has for brutalize uh, retaliatory violence against someone with we perceive to be a perceived offense or just someone against that we have racist beliefs about. And so by 1915, court-ordered executions outpaced lynchings in the former slave states for the first time. So executions were happening more than lynching. So if lynchings were once a week over that year period, that means uh, executions were almost a little bit more than once a week or were maybe once a week and lynchings went down to once every two weeks. So again, they're just replacing it. So two-thirds of those executed in the 1930s were black. Um, Two-thirds of those executed in the 1930s were black. As African Americans fell to just 22% of the South's population between 1910 and 1950, they constituted 75% of those executed during the South. So 22% of the population is 75% of those executed. And race remains a significant factor in capital sentencing today. African-Americans make up less than 13% of our nation's population, but nearly 42% of those currently on death row in America are black. 13% of the nation's population, 42% of those on death row are black. And 34% of those executed since 1976 have been black. And this number is consistent with with black people making up 38% of the general incarceration rate. And the crazy thing about death row, the crazy thing about capital punishment, it, I don't fully understand how these statistics happen um, compared to maybe normal crimes or petty crimes. But since 1973, more than 165 people have been found innocent who have been on death row. That's one in nine people on death row have been exonerated. One in nine. Um, that is nuts. So that means for one out of every nine people that are executed since 1973, one of them have been innocent that we executed at the hands of the justice system. And we are one of the few westernized nations that still permit this. Um, 
And then another reason for decreasing lynchings was a great migration from the South. Um, huge swaths of black Americans from the South moved to the North at, at the end of the 1940s um, after World War II um, and it, kind of during World War I as well. It was called the Great Migration. They went to the Northeast, the West, and the Midwest. Uh, within a single decade, the black populations of Georgia and South Carolina declined by 22% and 24% respectively. And so investigating these relocation trends, why did black America move from the South? Was it just for jobs? Was it just for labor? Um, and so the United States Department of Labor observed that one of the more effective causes of the exodus is the Negroes' insecurity from mob violence and lynchings. And so close to 6 million black Americans fled the South between 1910 and 1970. And many had to leave behind their homes, families, employment um, after a lynching or a near lynching experience. And another reason for the decrease in lynching was probably with activists and writers like Ida B. Wells. Um, she was one of the most prominent figures and advocates against lynching. Um, they got white men arrested for it. They worked with uh, other organizations to create the NAACP. Um, and that really helped as well bring attention to these issues, seek justice, um, and not allow these to continue to happen. But then even today, um, in modern day America, um, we have Fred Hampton that happened in the 60s. We have Rodney King in the 90s. Um, we have Ahmaud Arbery. Just recently, we have the Emanuel Nine in Charleston, and then we have police killings. Um, that yes, it's not vigilante justice, it's not civilians, but who are police officers other than civilians? Who are our justice system, our judges, of people that are moving towards these death row punishments to these capital punishments other than also civilians? And so we are still doing it. We have just uh, put a nice bow on it. We have... Uh, kind of brighten it up. Yeah, granted, it's not at the same scale um, because we have grown as a society. We have advanced, um, and that's a good thing. But it's just in a different format now. It may not be with lethality in the same way. So maybe it's not as murderous. Maybe it's not as people losing their lives. But there is still imprisonment, and we've talked about that. There's still um, racial terror, racial harassment, um, things that are minor scale versions of these things that are meant to serve out the same purpose of keeping black men down, black women down, keeping white men supreme, keeping white men in protecting white women roles and supporting their own masculinity. Um, this is still happening. And in all this, there's very few monuments or memorials that address the history and legacy of lynching in particular. Um, and so most communities do not even actively visibly recognize how their race relations were shaped by terror lynching. Um, it, literally, until the opening of Equal Justice Initiative's National Memorial, memorial for Peace and Justice in 2018, there was no prominent monument or memorial commemorated the thousands of African Americans who were lynched during the American era of racial terrorism. We have uh, U.S. Holocaust memorials um, for egregious uh, genocides that happen in other countries. But for the genocides that happen in our country, we, we have very little memorials, if not any at all. And so with that, um, yeah, we'll switch to talking about the Cross and Lynching Tree. I'll bring Ryan on. Um, but again, take some time. Uh, sit with this. Sit with the story. If you need to pause, uh, me and Ryan are going to reflect on the book, The Cross and Lynching Tree by James Cone, that talks about this experience, the, the plight of black Americans in America, or black Americans in uh, our racialized America. And we're going to reflect on it, talk about how black Christians have modeled the way of Jesus um, in their just history in America. But also, if you need to take some time and just sit, um, reflect, mourn, repent, uh, fall on your face, there, there's a, a ton of Christian precedent to fall on your face for the sins, the egregious sins of your ancestors. It's okay to weep. It's okay to repent. 
it's okay to to sit in ashes, um, realizing the horror, the terror that's been done that you had no idea of, or that you had a little idea but didn't know the extent of. Um, and even on this podcast, I gave you just a glimpse, just a, a touch. And even then, that's just of the known history of what we know. And so, yeah, um, take some time. I'll put the interlude on here um, before me and Ryan come back on on a, a different time. Um, but yeah, we'll see you on the other side. Keep it in more serious tones. So I got Ryan here with me now. Uh, we won't start with a, a food intro, <laughs> even though you know some people are going to miss out on this episode. Yeah. But Ryan, we're going to do a little reflection on the cross and the lynching tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ryan, can you talk? You know, you don't have to necessarily give us a Spark Notes version of the book, right? But could you just maybe why why did we title this episode the cross and the lynching tree? How are those connected? What is the connection? What is a little bit about James Cone's book? Um, across the country. Can you give us like a little synopsis? Yeah, so what this book sets out to accomplish, and I think it does it so well, is James Cone just magnifies the similarity between the black experience in America, um, broadens that out to the colonial African experience, and and just the realities of the cross and the unjust suffering and sacrifice that Jesus did um uh, one of the key Hmm. metaphors is even jesus uh his walk to golgotha or the place of the skull where he was crucified and um simon of cyrene um the black one uh more literally (laughs) is called to help him carry that cross and it's just fascinating to set that paradigm um next to each other of of how many black people have been lynched or, or tortured or killed unjustly and Jesus's lynching very literally his killing his being placed on a tree um, and that journey from false accusation walking to the cross and then a black man carrying that with him um, bearing that cross it's like the parallelism is uncanny when you when you stop and think about that and and that's what James Cone really just tries to show you. He he tries to compare these things and not contrast them, but just compare them. And it's it's beautiful yeah. and heart wrenching. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think for like us white Americans, us white Christians, I had never even thought to consider. I mean, we talk a lot about like carry your cross or like what are modern day's ways of being sacrificial mm-hmm. or carrying your cross? Like, what does this look like? And never once have it been highlighted to me. Has it been brought up? Right. Have I even seen like the very persecution mm-hmm. of Christians in America? We think that's happening. Oh, it's very clear for Chinese Christians or maybe North Korean Christians mm-hmm. on what that looks like. It's more easy to see how that relates to Jesus and like what he did. But we always kind of in America, it's like, well, it's when you just give up, you know, 
eating some food <laughs> for dinner or something. Correct. Yeah. When we actually have a very tangible, very American image mm-hmm. um, right in front of us, but obviously due to our study of history, we've been blind to. So let me read two quotes, Ryan. Yeah. Um, and then you can kind of reflect off them, expound off them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is from Cohen in the book. It says, The cross has been transformed into a harmless, non-offensive ornament that Christians wear around their necks. Uh, side note, that is <laughs> convicting. I am currently wearing a cross around my neck. Uh, so, the cross has been transformed into a harmless, non-offensive ornament that Christians wear around their necks. Rather than reminding us of the costs of discipleship, it has become a form of cheap grace. Until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with a re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, mm. there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. And then he continues, Both the cross and the lynching tree were symbols of terror, instruments of torture and execution, reserved primarily for slaves, criminals, and insurrectionists the lowest of the low in society. Mm. Both Jesus and blacks share this. It was to let people know that the same thing would happen to them if they did not stay in their place. So Ryan, when when you read stuff like that, I mean, even as you went through this book, what was arising in you? Just emotionally, historically, generationally, what I, I know this book was powerful for both of us, but especially for you, what, what was kind of your experience as you read very poignant words like that? You know, it's, it's kind of wild because I had this growing intuition that there were similarities almost for a really long time. No, I couldn't, I couldn't flesh out the words. I couldn't necessarily draw out the specifics, but when I read I remember that quote in the book, when I read that and as I was reading the book, it just confirmed something like really deep in my psyche, something really deep in my soul that made sense. And, and I think a part of me wanted to not totally feel all of that. I did not make it through the book without crying multiple times. I think I read it in a sitting and a half maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to almost be like, no, 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 we, we can't make it this exclusive. We can't just make the cross and Jesus about just black people. But then, you know, sitting in a coffee shop that will not be named, um, (laughs) where every day... We'll just say it's Starbucks. Yeah, we'll just say that. Every day (laughs) you've got really wealthy, older white men debating the finer points of Fox News saying racism doesn't exist, saying things like we don't need to think about slavery. That wasn't my fault. When, when I get to then read this book in that place and recognize how contextualized my spiritual mm-hmm. life has been in America and recognize how much um, unnamed atrocity has happened even in my family that's passed down through my bones and my genes, all the the... I don't know, the untold, unknown yeah. traumas that happened that somehow my, mm-hmm. my family survived. It just it just broke me of like, okay, that I can name this. I can claim this. I, I don't want to do the theological thing where I say, no, it doesn't have to be the specific. No, I want it to be this specific. I do want mm-hmm. to own 
that parallel. I do want to take that and recapitulate it as, yes, I find my genetics, my DNA, my ability to even be in America, I find all of this paralleling what Jesus did on the cross. And, and there's almost a sweet sense of, Ryan, I know what this is, and I lived it, and I did this for you and for your family and for your people. Whether yeah. or not they choose to respond to this free grace, I did it. And the fact that so many hmm. slaves became believers, n knowing this parallel probably intuitively, if they knew English or whatever, it's just amazing to me. And so that's, I don't know, that's kind of where I went. It, it, it kind of gave me permission to fully embrace, I think, a providential symbol. I do think, yeah, I do think it's providential from, from God to allow yeah. such a paralleled story to take place in America with the black ones and to have the black one carry the cross to the crucifixion site. You can't make that up, man. Yeah. 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 I think even thinking of like when you sitting in that coffee shop that shall not be named and <clears throat> thinking of these older white men arguing about whether it's Fox news or even, you know, let's say they're arguing about theology and predestination right. or, um, thinking of, uh, the eternal subordination of the sun mm -hmm. or things like this. Um, and just thinking like, well, you know, slavery and race and all that stuff, that's like so far in the past. We need to talk about these deeper theological things. We don't have time to talk about anything to do with race. Like we're okay now. Mm -hmm. And Ryan, you weren't listening in the episode, obviously, but I like listed out the dates and the years of when lynching really occurred. And it was all actually post-slavery for the most part, obviously mm -hmm. horrific horrors happened during slavery and, mm -hmm. and some things happened during then, but a lot of the racialized terror increased post-slavery right. until literally less than 70 years ago. Um, at least in what everyone would agree upon. Right. Obviously there's, there's cases of lynching that have happened in the last 10 to 15 years, depending on how you look at it, but um, someone will look at that. So it's just interesting that there's this divine parallel between <laughs> black people in America and black Christians in America and Simon, the Cyrene, mm. who was a black Christian um, and who carried the cross and, and black Christians in some ways in America carried the cross for America, mm -hmm. uh, if you think about it in those ways. And so Joshua Du Bois um, or Joshua Dubois, <laughs> whichever du way Bois. you want to look at it, he's quoted um, in the book. Uh, and he says this, kind of comparing uh, the plight of Jesus and the plight of black men and women in America. He says, yet Jesus Christ was a laborer and black men are laborers. He was poor and we are poor. He was despised of his fellow men and we are despised. Mm. He was persecuted and crucified and we are mobbed and lynched. If Jesus Christ came to America, he would associate with Negroes and Italians and working people. He would eat and pray with them mm -hmm. and, he would sell, and he would seldom see the interior of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And so just thinking of American history and American Christian history, and we always ask the question, what would Jesus do? Where would Jesus be? Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think he would probably be with the black church. He'd probably be with maybe Italians, like he said, judging the boys said, at least back in the day, maybe not anymore. <laughs> uh, because Italians have kind of 
switched on race and switched their associations. Um, but yeah, so I want to I want to quote one more quote, Ryan, and then we can we can talk about this because that's probably the last point we'll talk on because we want to talk a little bit about okay, white Christians were complicit in lynchings. White Christians attended them. White Christians uh, even you know helped promote them. Yeah. Um, white pastors can condone them. White pastors um, maybe even ended church early so Christians could attend them. This is historically documented. So how do how can we look at white Christians in American's history and how do we view them in terms of the kingdom of God and the people of God when they stood by encouraged or even participated in this kind of atrocity, even of their fellow brothers in Jesus. So Cohn says this, and then Ryan, you can kind of reflect off of it. Mm. Cohn says black people did not go to black people did not need to go to seminary and study theology to know that white Christianity was fraudulent. Mm. We wondered how whites could live with their hypocrisy, such a blatant contradiction of the man from Nazareth. White conservative Christianity's blatant endorsement of lynching as a part of its religion and white liberal Christians' silence about lynching placed them both outside of Christian identity. There is no way a community could support or ignore lynching in America while still representing in word and deed the one who was lynched by Rome. So Cohen kind of takes a hard, hard line stance. Yeah. Um, we don't have to take that kind of hardline stance, right? We can talk maybe more broadly. Um, but yeah, wh- how do you, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before with you thinking of Puritans and thinking of, you know, Jonathan Edwards and these past Christian quote unquote heroes and Christian theologians in America. So Ryan, maybe as a last reflection, how, how do you look at especially white Christianity's history in America? How do you see them? Where's the nuance? What would you say strongly? What are you not willing to say? Um, and then I can follow up with you and say things much harder because <laughs> that's who I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh. You know, I'm. we're in Romans right now for the summer. We're about to go to summer camp. God willing, we make it. Um, and uh, this is so funny Romans 9 through 11 is often used as the battlegrounds for mm-hmm. white theologians to debate predestination oh right? yeah I probably spent more time in Romans 9 through 11 than any other part of scripture Dude. in seminary or at least that's where most of the debate and the arguments were had and there's this little thing in chapter 11 that we forget about all the time as paul is writing to really wealthy mixed hellenistic um jewish christians and and uh probably philosophized romans that have come into christianity um in the um middle class of pax romana whatever what and and what you see is paul talking about hey there's always seven thousand He's quoting from an Old Testament passage. There's always 7,000 who have not kissed the feet of Baal. But he's arguing against, you can't just inherit spiritual legitimacy because you call yourself a Jew. That's not how this game's played anymore. God's always been coming after people, and he has always been going after the nations. Um, and so I read, I read Esau and Jacob as representative of different nations, with different roles. I don't hmm. read them as God picked one and not the other because damned and not damned. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a poor reading of the text. 
and in that I say that because what America has done with white Christianity is says we're in, you're out. We have power, you don't. We're chosen, you're not. Yeah. To a national level, and it's become a nationalistic, syncretistic um, cult in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so what I can do in that with the prophet, I think it's Elijah actually. Um, I think God tells Elijah this and Paul quotes it. I can trust that there's 7,000 who haven't kissed the feet of Bill. And that number is supposed mm-hmm. to be large enough to mean something, but small enough to feel like it yeah. doesn't. And I just can't look at the last 280 years of white Christianity and, and say that everybody was legitimately spiritual. What I can say is that there was 7,000 symbolically. Yeah. And that's the, and yeah. God's sovereignty, if we're going to talk about his sovereignty in Romans, that's what I see him doing is keeping those who have not kissed the mm-hmm. feet of nationalistic, military, colonial, wealth-driving racism. That's what yeah. I see. That's good. That's good. I think that's fair. Uh, I think of, I mean, obviously you can't make any determination on any individual's mm-hmm. uh, salvation or participation in the kingdom. Right. Um, but we do have to grapple and sit and wrestle with the fact that there was tons of Christians in American white church history that claimed to follow, again, Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. who was crucified. Brown Middle Eastern men. Condoned and encouraged and even participated in lynching. I can't say definitively that they are not in the kingdom, but I can say definitively they weren't living into the kingdom. Correct, yeah. Um, and that that is the hard part where... There's always a remnant. There were white Christians that helped end slavery, obviously. Mm-hmm. There was white Christians that helped uh, end so many injustices, but the vast majority of white Christian American history is, generally speaking, fraudulent. Uh, not individually speaking, not saying any of your heroes, not saying any of your church traditions. Maybe your churches were the good ones. Maybe your white Christian ancestors were the good ones. Maybe your uh, white theologians that you follow in America were the good ones. But we do have to wrestle with the fact um that there's that blatant, how can you look at Jesus being crucified and then go do the exact same thing to someone else? And now granted, that is a judgment and a prophetic word against us and our participation, support of atrocities that are committed by this nation as well. Um, so we we are not uh, adjudicated even in our current day. But uh, yeah, when we look back, it is hard uh, to look at. So I, I, I personally, like personally speaking, this is an opinion. This is not a theological truth. I personally don't look to the white church in American history as any type of guidance for me in the spiritual walk. I will look to the black church. I will look to the immigrant church. I will look to maybe some white church fathers uh, who clearly walked what they preached. But I, I don't find solace. I don't find comfort. I don't find direction uh, from my, my white ancestors in the faith. Um, and I don't think we should uh, just because of the blatant hypocrisy it's like if if chinese i don't want to again i don't want to bring everything into this we'll end this after this maybe so i don't say anything more crazy um but it's like if there were chinese christians that were endorsing genocide of the uyghur people and we all said man we should learn theology from them like it just Mm. it just feels it feels so blatant to even try to nuance it which is what most people do at their best. At their worst, it's just blatant. We don't even care. They're great. We love them in church history. 
So, Ryan, is there any last thoughts before I uh, close us out? No, man. I think that's a that's a word. It's yeah. so uh, staring us in the face. Do we want to look? You know. Yeah. Do you want to look? Yeah. So, I got nothing to add, man. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and so for all you listening, uh, we're going to take a week break. Uh, we're still in season two, but we're going to take a week break. Um, just so again, so if you've listened to this episode, so you can sit with it. Uh, we have Juneteenth coming up this weekend. Um, sit with it. Learn more history. Listen to this episode again. Uh, I know it's probably hard to get through. Mourn. Repent. Uh, repent for your ancestors. Repent for your nation. Um, so just sit with this, and we're going we're gonna to take a week of break just to encourage uh, you to sit with this harsh reality. And like Ryan was saying, look at it. It's right there. It's staring us in the face. Would you be willing um, to look at what our nation was a part of? Yeah. So we'll see you all in two see weeks. Ya.